Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 121 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where beardless Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. For the listeners that don't uh, usually visually see us on the YouTube, because we have us, of course, posted on YouTube, you can see the videos of us talking. Um, I have shaved my beard. You have. You're just rocking the goat now. I am rocking the goat, and it's little invigorating. It's a change up. You haven't had uh, shaved cheeks at least for how many months? Oh my God. You're probably talking. Probably close to a year, right? Over that. Over that. I would say 15, 16 months. Wow. Yeah. It's been a while. Looks good. You just got a fresh haircut too. So you're. I'm looking fresh and clean. I'm ready. You're all ready to go. Listeners better be careful. We'll fire it up for the podcast today. Uh, before we begin, as always, I just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month of the and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of uh, three o'clock today on October 27th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 6.3% for the month and up 21.9% for the year. The Dow up 5.35% for the month and up thir- or excuse me, 16.5% for the year. The NASDAQ up 4.55% for the month and up 18.15% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 3% for the month and 14.9% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 3.5% for the month and 8.8% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.06%, the two-year treasury yield sitting at 0.51%, and the 10-year treasury yield sitting at 1.59%. I will note in last week's podcast recording in 120, the 10-year yield was exactly the same as it is today. Just want to throw it out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Big news and headlines, current events from the week. Weekly initial jobless claims came in again under 300,000 last week for the second straight week. Uh, the actual figure was 290,000, and uh, of course, there will be a lot of eyes on the October jobs report that's due out on November 5th. Uh, tons of eyes. Yeah. Lots of eyes. Abnormally high, given how light the number was in September. Right, right. And especially going into the next point, the Federal Reserve released data last Wednesday, which is called the Fed's Beige Book. Uh, which is a report that's published eight times per year in which each Federal Reserve Bank gathers anecdotal information on current economic conditions in its district. Uh, It confirmed some comments we have made on the podcast over the past several weeks, Matt, that confirmed the U.S. economy is still growing at a solid pace, but labor shortages and supply chain bottlenecks are restraining growth and triggering higher inflation. The report cited labor shortage 26 times compared to just six mentions in January, and supply chain problems were mentioned 37 times in the report compared to nine mentioned in January. Hmm. Uh, The consensus of the report said that most businesses are cautiously optimistic that conditions will improve in the months ahead. So that's interesting. But again, we talked about this a little bit last week that 
you know, this has so many eyes on it right now that, you know, I am in the camp that things are going to get better from here. It's going to take a little bit of time. I'm with you on that. Uh, Last but not least, China's Evergrande averted a formal default of its debt, making a key interest payment of $83.5 million two days before their 30-day grace period was set to end on October 23rd. The world's most indebted property developer is buckling under the weight of more than $300 billion in debt and has been struggling to raise funds to to pay suppliers and investors. So technically speaking, they have not formally defaulted. Technically, yes yet yep so and i'll have some more comments on that here in a little bit i i I have i yeah i definitely prepared some stuff i want to share with listeners just to give some scope okay scope uh tweets articles and research from the week i had one from lizanne saunders on october 5th who is the uh chief investment strategist at charles schwab she said for all the recent chatter about how long the market has gone without a 10% correction, a look under the hood reveals a heck of a lot of weakness has already occurred. Nature of rotational corrections is that performance offsets can keep uh, overall index can keep the overall indexes afloat. So she lists out the percentage of members within the S&P 500, the Nasdaq and the Russell 2000, the small cap index of these names how many of them have had at least a 10 percent correction from the year-to-date high 91 percent of of s p 500 constituents have had at least a 10 percent correction at some time this year 90 percent of nasdaq constituents and 98 percent of russell 2000 constituents that's a pretty big number people keep seeing 52 week highs and 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 they're afraid maybe to put money to work they need to they need to put their ear to ground a little closer on this one. Right. And even more kind of staggering, the average member decline from the year to date high has been 17% for the S&P 500, 38% for the NASDAQ, and 34% decline for the Russell 2000 average member. So, you know, there's kind of uh, a couple different ways that you can look at a correction. And I think there's kind of three main ways, at least, that, you know, people in our industry consider, right? So number one is the obvious of a major pullback in the general markets, right? S&P 500, NASDAQ, Dow, Russell 2000. Um, so, you know, greater than 10% is deemed as a correction. And whoever came up with that, you know, it kind of was just picked out of thin air. Yep. Besides the point, uh, number two is a, a correction over time. So an example of this is the the small cap ETF, ticker symbol IWM, essentially since it hit its high in February has gone nowhere. It's traded sideways. So dead money since February. Right. So digesting its huge run up that it had in 2020 and early 2021. Correct. So price correction, time correction like IWM. And then the third type is this, where there's been so much rotation between uh industries and performance this year that you know under the surface most of these stocks in these indices have had massive corrections so far this year and even i mean for the nasdaq you know bear market territory the average nasdaq stock has pulled back 38 percent from its high at some point this year that's dramatic that's huge but still the nasdaq's up 
what did I say? Eight, some 18% year to date. Yeah, I'll get you the exact so we get it right. 18.15. So within these sectors and within these industries, you know, the rotation has been strong where one industry has been doing poorly for three months. There's been five other industries that have been performing really well. And then it switches and it keeps switching. So you see the major indexes you know, continue to hit all time highs. But if you take a look under the surface, a lot of these names have already experienced a correction. So when someone comes to me and says, you know, we're doomed for a market correction or, or, or a crash because general markets haven't pulled back more than seven, eight percent this year, you know, you can kind of look at this and say, well, under the surface, it kind of already, you know, has happened. Yes. So, you know, being our chief investment officer of the firm that you and I own together, what do you think about consolidation periods? And what do you generally say when you see a period of consolidation that's like the IWM that's, that has taken since February? Is that something that is bullish or bearish? And as I kind of look to see how you're going to respond, I'm going to look at Jen. <laughs> um, so it depends on your time horizon. If it's let's, short, let's, if it's if it's short term, then, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. But long term, I think it's really healthy, you know, and I've had a lot of these conversations with with clients is that, you know, while it is disappointing over the short term, i.e. one to 10 months, I think it's very healthy long term, because if you think back to the early 2000s, um, when stocks went up for two to three years without a breather like this, the market fell apart. You know, it was, a, it was a sustained breakdown. Right. So. You know, I, I do think, you know, with the massive run up, especially in small cap stocks in 2020 after the market low in March of 2020, this is extremely healthy for it to take a little bit of a breather, trade sideways before it resumes its next leg higher. So in my opinion, long term, this is very healthy for the market. Yeah, you know, the other point I was going to make is just overall, the market, as you said, cannot go straight up. Mm -hmm. And when you really look at the numbers the main indices that a lot of investors track, like the ones we talk about in the beginning because they're very popular with investors, don't give you the full picture. Right. They don't. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's like going back to our conversation we've had before about um, average yearly performance of, of the S&P 500 yeah, how, how or the Dow. How often does it come close to 8 to 10 or 8 to 12%? How, right, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. So, But the longer-term number is going to say that it is. Yeah. But then we go back to how disciplined are people to stay fully invested for 10 years and not switch anything at all. Yeah, and it takes a lot. Yeah, I've seen the studies. I mean, they've done studies, and I'll, I'll break one out in the future. J.P. Morgan does one pretty, uh, pretty often, and it looks at the average return of an individual investor versus the in returns of the indices, and it's night and day. I know right. we've talked about it in the podcast before. And it's, it's one thing to look at those numbers and say, yeah, I'm going to invest that way. It's yet another to be able to stay disciplined and fully invested through COVID, February, March of 2020, to stay fully invested to the fourth quarter of 18. Mm -hmm. And that is where my bias of saying working with a professional really helps people focus on what matters to them, their plan, and don't listen to the noise. Yeah. And that makes me think of like a, a research paper that I wrote and it compared, you know, performance for a certain amount of time and then not being invested during the 10 best days 
of the stock market over that period of time, and the long-term performance is staggering difference. That because you, people tend to focus on what risk? The risk of, I'm in the market and it could drop. Right. But what they don't talk about, and that was one of my last comments in last week's podcast, there's a significant risk of not being in the market. Yeah, huge. People don't talk about that as much. Right. Yeah, it goes back to people are always preparing for the bad times, but no one tries to prepare for the good times, right? Yeah. Uh, the next thing I had was a tweet from Brian Feroldi on uh, October 18th. I just read it. This is going to be great. <laughs> Uh, of this year, and he says a high dividend yield is a sign that a company used to be great but no longer is. Boom. And let me ex a lot to explain there. my interpretation of it. I think very rarely do you see a company's stock price advance and that company at the same time consistently raise their dividend by a significant amount to keep the same dividend yield. That just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, right or wrong? Uh, you're absolutely right. It doesn't happen with the names that we've owned the past several years. Right. And, you know, so again, I don't have the data in front of me, so this is just my interpretation of this. But, you know, you have a a company's stock price significantly decline and the dividend stays the same, then the dividend yield, yield. is going to stay higher, right? Because it's the dividend yield is the, the dividend paid out, the annual dividend paid out divided by the share price. That's right. right. Um, so typically when you see these high, high dividend yielding stocks, they're high for a reason because the stock price has been garbage for the past you know, how many years and you're trying to attract a certain shareholder base to that. Right. And you and typically have no growth in the EPS and sometimes declining revenue growth. How do you value a company with declining revenue? Well, yeah. And then the other thing you have to take into account is that, you know, companies are not obligated to pay a dividend number one true. or to keep the same dividend for X amount of years. Also true. So that dividend could always get cut, right? So that's the first thing. And if companies aren't growing enough and they need to save money, essentially, they're going to cut their dividend. And that's always a risk with anything. So that's why it's like goes back to like the no free lunch conversation. It's like, yeah, someone like Evergrande, they could default on their debt. Companies can cut their dividend there's there's risk with with all of that. Even if I mean you have an annuity through a financial institution and the financial in institution goes belly up, what happens to the annuity? That's right. It's only backed by the faith and guarantee of that specific company, not any sort of insurance or institution usually. Right. So yeah. it's nothing that's like guaranteed. And we always come back to this term guaranteed. It's like there is no guarantee in the market. <laughs> kind of thinking about, I won't get too deep into it, but we got to remember like a lot of those annuity companies have credit ratings. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's not backed by the U.S. government. No. No, it's not. Um, you know, thinking of the dividend thing, here's another way I think that I would like to phrase it for listeners, Mark. At the end of the day, when a company can no longer justify reinvesting into its business for growing, and then it has money build up and they have to, in essence, the, the shareholders are demanding a return on their money because the revenue is not growing anymore. That's when the dividend starts to get high. Right. And so, you know, 
I'm not saying that those types of stocks are, are bad. I'm not mm -hmm. saying those stocks are bad even for any sort of investor. But I will note that there is a high correlation between a high dividend and little to no EPS growth and sometimes negative mm -hmm. growth on their revenue. Yeah. True or false? True. Okay. And so ultimately, it's hard in the market to value a company that is not growing. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Very. And that is a trap that historically people would look at, you know, good dividend paying stocks. And, you know, company can raise its dividend, but if its share price is outpacing those dividend raises, it, you're still, it's not going to keep up. Yeah. But, you know, the companies that have these extremely high dividend payout ratios and they attract investor bases based upon that dividend payout ratio, my comment to investors is, as much as that dividend's paying fictitiously 6%, you could lose that and a lot more in the share price. And you're paying taxes on the dividend and you're losing money on the, the share price more than that. Right. But all they see is that shiny dividend mm -hmm. and they don't see the rest of the risk around it. Right. Makes sense? Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, um, yeah, again, there, it's just, there's just more than meets the eye when it comes to looking at dividends that company or companies are paying. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, I can give a real life example because I'm going to use AT&T as an example. This is not a recommendation yeah, for or against AT&T. Yeah. <laughs> but AT&T has attracted a client base that is uh, overly reliant and likes that dividend. Guess what? They haven't invested in, um, in their company in the realm of keeping like their wireless network up to speed. And so guess what they've had to do? They've had to cut their dividend to restart investing in their network because they're not keeping up with the competition. And take on a significant amount of debt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They got a noose around their neck in the form of debt right now. Yeah. So just throw it out there. Yeah, good point. Just because they pay that dividend doesn't mean they're going to keep doing it. Exactly right. Um, Last piece that I had was a blog post written by Barry Ritholtz, and he says, what if things go right? That's the title of this blog post. Okay. So he says, the COVID crash recovery was starting to look like it was on shaky ground. High equity prices and uptick in market volatility after a period of tranquility, concerns about the Federal Reserve ending QE and low rates, credit problems with Chinese real estate developers, and more. There are plenty of worst case scenarios to consider if that is your preferred poison. Evolu <laughs> Evolution has primed your brain to identify possible threats to your survival, hence our focus on the negative. But suppress that inherent bias for a few moments to try a simple thought experiment of inversion. Given my overall constructive stance on markets, I want to imagine for a moment a scenario that is the opposite of the worst case. What do the USA and the world look like if most things more or less go right? Okay. What if a normal economic recovery replaces the pandemic slowdown? Consider these factors. The Delta variant rolls over. Political resolution. Even in D.C., sometimes things align towards accomplishment instead of derailment. This feels like one of those times. It is not hard to imagine that a deal gets cut and all of them are resolved positively. Federal Reserve remains accommodative. Barring any surprises, the taper of, of Fed bond purchases is looking increasingly likely this year. It's anticlimactic at this point. Regardless, rates will remain low for the foreseeable future, with modest increases unlikely to begin until the second half of 2022 at the earliest. Fed funds rates above 3% is unlikely for years. 
inflation. I've been in the reset transitory camp for a long time. The biggest cost pressures seem to be related to reopening problems and supply chain issues. Maybe this lasts into mid-2022. China problems stay in Asia. Assume Evergrande goes to zero. Does it really matter? Is its paper in every bond manager's portfolio? Will global real estate take a 30% dive? Hardly likely. China is deeply interconnected to global industrial manufacturing and its supply chains, but the integration of China's credit and financial system is no way near as entrenched as America's was in 07 to 09. Agreed. This looks to be more uh, Archegos or Ar- Archegos. How do you say that? The big money manager that defaulted or went out of business. Archegos. Remember that earlier mm-hmm. this year? No, I remember that earlier this year. Uh, more like that than, Didn't Le- even hit my radar. I apologize. Than, uh, than Lehman Brothers to me. There are always things to be concerned about in markets, millions of reasons to sell as the market climbs a wall of worry. The trick is to understand what is merely day-to-day noise versus what is deeper and more significant. It is as much art as it is science, so don't expect any magic bullets. I got, I got a piece on China here in a second, too. I'm telling you, man, it, I think, well, I'll let you finish. I apologize. No, that was it. That was it. But I just thought that was a really good short little piece that... I think Barry did a good job on that. Again, you know, I think you have to be open to both sides of it, that things could go right or things could go wrong. But more often than not, over history, things end up going right. That's right. And people overly focus on the negatives, which puts them sometimes as disadvantaged because they make financial decisions based on fear. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's our human nature, though, right? Yeah. So... You know, it, it's just like, you know, uh, we're always on high alert for, okay, what is the threat to us? What is the threat to our family and friends? And you always want to be protective of that. Um, but like, for example, like, you know, just to put it in simplistic terms, like betting on on sports. So like sports gambling. Mm-hmm. Most Americans, horrible sports gamblers, right? Because so, they bet with emotion. Right. So it's like, you know, you're looking at a game and you're like, I want to take this team. I think more people would come out on top if they just did the opposite of what they think is going to happen. Right. So you can relate this back to the markets. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of fear mongering going on right now. But when is there not it, everyone? The excuse that everyone gives me is but it's, it's just so much worse this time. And it's uh, like how, how often do is, you hear that? Yeah. That's a time. big point, Mark. Yeah. It's so much worse. It's this time. either so much worse this time or it's different, different this, this time. time. Yeah. There's always it's, it's like always going to be an excuse. When not we to had JC on the podcast. It's just like, you know, I think I asked the question of something along the lines For of listeners, JC Peretz. Yeah. At all star charts. And uh, he was like, when it when is it not crazy? When is it, there's never a time period where there's nothing going on or nothing to worry about. That's never. when the market's at a high. Never. That's at the, when the market's at a high. Yeah. Early on in the podcast, I would usually say, I always want the market climbing a wall of worry. Mm-hmm. I always want that. Yeah. Because if the market's not climbing a wall of worry, all the money's in the market, prices are at a high point, that's when you need to start lowering your equity allocations. Mm-hmm. I love climbing a wall of worry. Jenna, that should be my other t-shirt. The <laughs> Jenna says my other one's on the way. I was going to say, you could just get I haven't it, dropped my line yet. on the back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, there's always going to be things like this going on. And obviously, we're always heightened to what's going on at this moment in time that we forget, you know, that we've been in these 
times before over the past decade. Remember during COVID in February and March, and we were trying to be the voice of reason because at the time it felt like it was going to perpetually be that way for such a long time. Mm -hmm. People had to take action. If I don't take action, Mark, I'm going to lose my retirement savings. Mm -hmm. And it's a V-shaped recovery, and they were back up to those levels by middle or end of summer. Mm -hmm. But at that time, remember what it felt like for people. Yeah. There were days where the market was down 10%, 10% in a day. And it felt like it was going to continue at that pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, we're no different. I mean, we were pretty pessimistic when that was happening too. We were like, wow, this is, you know, but you got, you got to pull the we emotional to, mask the off. The big thing is we were able to look at it in the way that we invest, say, okay, the underlying fundamentals of the names we own, not just the general market, you know, the names that we own, we feel good about those names still, mm-hmm. right? We made our own analysis of that. And right. I, I think that's kind of the differentiator. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it would be different if we were short-term managers where we hold positions for, you know, a month to yeah. three months, but that's, that's just, that's not the case. Absolutely not. Yep. So, um, yeah, it, there's never going to be a time where you're like, oh, I should I'm, be all in right yeah, now. I feel comfortable, 100% comfortable investing at this time. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. And if it is, that's a concern. Right. Right. Okay. Ready for me? Let's go. I got three. First one, Chinese property sector. I got to get on the bandwagon here. Okay. <laughs> so, Mark, I have another interesting tweet by an interesting tweeter. Okay. This time, uh, the, the Twitter handle is the Great Martis. The Great Martis. <laughs> And his bio says, <laughs> I'm sorry. and I quote, world's greatest stock trader, philosopher, and cigar enthusiast. I think I'd get along pretty well with this I guy. I think you would get along with this guy really yeah. well. Okay. Yeah, solve the world problems. I just, and I'm, I'm, I'm not laughing at him directly. I'm laughing at how just direct he is in the bio. I got to give him, got to give credit to that. Twitter is free entertainment. That's Hey, I gusto to the great Martis just to beat, just to throw it out there <laughs> about his opinion about himself. The guy has 40,000 followers, by the way. It's now, here's his post about the, 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 the Chinese property sector. I would like to read it, and then I'm going to give my opinion. Okay? This is what his says. China's $17 trillion economy, 78% of total Chinese assets are held in the property sector. Think about that, Mark. 30% of total GDP is in the property sector. Mm-hmm. 60, per, 60 plus developers, pending default, consequences are mind-bending. This is what people are seeing, mm-hmm. right? And then you have all the financial networks, whether print or video, are throwing out this stuff. I think that's why you saw Barry Ritholtz right. make the comments he's made. Okay, so let me, let me unpack this a little bit, Okay. According to a CNBC article that was published on October 20th by Yen Ni Li, it confirms that, in fact, 30% of China's GDP is related to real estate and related industries. Because I don't know this person. I don't know. He didn't cite his sources. I needed to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So once again, it confirms that 30% of China's GDP is related to real estate and related industries. According to the World Bank, Mark, China makes up 18% of global global GDP as of 2020. I can confirm those two things, and I've cited their sources. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, why is this important? I said it once. I'm going to say it again. 
the Chinese cannot afford to let 30% of their GDP go into a recession. Support, bailouts, call them what you will. In my opinion, I think they're going to have to support this one way or the other. Assuming I'm correct in my personal opinion, that lowers the risk of contagion spreading out from East Asia, very similar to Barry's comments. I had mm -hmm. no idea you were going to talk about that, yeah. by the way. But what's your, what's your thoughts now that I put a little facts behind it? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, so here's the thing. This is such a uh, debatable topic among people. Uh, a political topic, I think, is, you know, supporting bailouts or not supporting bailouts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got to see uh, George W. Bush talk at a conference. One we time. did. Yeah, we did. And that was very, and that was very, someone asked the question, take the political side out of it. It yeah. was great to hear. Yeah. And, um, you know, someone asked the question, would you do things differently in terms of bailing out the banks in 07? And he said, no, he said, no, he said all the information that I had, the outcome, if we didn't would have been significantly worse. worse. And I know people are, are pissed off and upset that, you know, They're Wall the Street got bailouts, people millionaires, billionaires got bailouts, but it would have been, he was like, it, with all the information I had, it would have been a lot worse. Um, so that's just one thing that came to my mind that I wanted to say, but I agree with you. I, you know, China comes off as, or they did come off as, we're not bailing out anybody and then a couple of weeks later, they kind of changed their tune. Of course. They started forcing companies to buy assets. They're starting to force companies to buy real estate assets to support prices. At the end of the day, when you look at the facts, I don't see any other option. They don't have any other options. Right. With 30% of their economy in this. They don't have other options. Yeah. And guess what? This is no longer a surprise. Right. So if, if, if Evergrande did default, it, like they're supposed to, right? And what do you it's always not, say? It's not what the market is focused on that derails it. Yeah. It's something that no one sees coming. Yes. Right. I.e. COVID. Right. Exactly. So, again, this this Evergrande stuff, I don't think, well, it could have a lot of implications. It's not going to bring down world economies. I, don't I think. just wanted to support my thesis as to why I felt in essence, the Chinese don't have a choice. Yeah. Chinese government. Fair. Okay. Next thing I have is a blog post by Zero Hedge. And the, and the title of it is, Why Goldman Expects a Huge Market Melt-Up in the Coming Weeks. This was published on October 17th. Now, some of the reasonings uh, that they listed were a little technical for the podcast, Mark. So I'm going to focus on one of the specific things they highlighted, uh, which is corporate stock buybacks because I don't think it gets enough attention. Before I begin, Mark, explain to listeners, what is a corporate stock buyback? You're a big buyback guy too. Doesn't get you enough love, credit, baby. You Doesn't get enough credit, okay? Sometimes somebody has to bring to light <laughs> what is sometimes moving these stocks and supporting this market, and it's not whatever you know CNBC or Bloomberg says. This is the underlying currents. This, this is the stuff that's really moving it. Yeah. So um, stocks can buy back their shares from the open market. So there's not uh, as many shares available to be traded by the public. Lowering That's, the float. Right, exactly. Which, in theory, worked out in a perfect world 
should increase the stock price because earnings per share are higher, revenue per share is higher, go down the line with all the metrics. And, you know, the opposite of that is when uh, companies need to raise capital so they issue more shares to the market. And typically stocks get hit short term for that, right? So as you take shares out of the market, you're creating more scarcity in the remaining shares that are available. And when you do an, an earnings analysis of earnings per share, EPS, mm -hmm. it raises that number artificially, artificially yeah. because there's less shares in the market. Hence, the remaining shares that people hold are worth more. Mm -hmm. And if there's more demand for those shares in the coming months, then that's going to you know, positively affect the stock price, right? Love this. Yep. All right. I'm going to put some stats behind this. Okay. You ready for this? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is according to Goldman Sachs. Um, U.S. corporations have authorized $884 billion year to date corporate stock, stock buybacks as of October 8th. This year-to-date authorization record is a record and exceeds the tax reform euphoria of 2018. They expect for the total year authorizations to come in at $965 billion. So remember a couple podcasts ago when I talked about the cash and the balance sheets of the S&P 500? Pre-COVID is about $5.5 trillion, and now it's closer to like $7.5 trillion. You got $2 trillion of cash on these balance sheets. And they're still accruing to it every day we speak. And shareholders want a return on that capital. That money sitting in cash on the balance sheet isn't doing anybody any good. Mm -hmm. I'll continue. I'm going to so I need a soapbox. <laughs> the Goldman Sachs buyback desk forecast that $887 billion worth of these buyback executions for 2021. This would be the second highest year on record. Here's the breakdown by quarters. I'll say it, but I'm not going to focus on it. Um, the actual number for Q1, 203 billion of stock buybacks. Q2, 234 billion actual. The forecasted number for Q3, though it's not finalized yet, 220 billion. And the fourth quarter is estimated to be 230 billion. Now, let's focus on Q4 because we're in Q4, Mark. The desk at Goldman Sachs, their buyback desk, estimates that 70 billion was bought back in October. They're estimating um, it's going to be 160 billion in November, in December. Okay. Now, here's the kicker I want to focus on, because when companies report earnings, companies are not able to be buying back their own stock during the blackout periods. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a blackout period usually is ahead of earnings announcements. They have to announce earnings and then let the market digest that information, and then they're able to go back into the market and begin buying their stock again. Here's the kicker. The buyback desk at Goldman estimates that 65% of corporations will have their windows back open to start buying back their stock again on November 1st. And then as of November 8th, 90% of corporations are gonna have their windows open and begin to trade, okay? So there are 42 and a half trading days in November and December, including major vacation weeks and low liquidity. The 160 billion of repurchases in the last two months of the year is roughly 3.8 billion per day. Billion with a B, baby. This is significantly front-loaded into November. And what I'm getting at is, you wanna talk about a tailwind of demand? It is corporate buybacks. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fired up about so that it. That was a good rant. That was really good. No, I... Um... 
it's a it, it's a good thing for for shareholders i really do and at the end of the day you a shareholder want to return on this money you do not want them sitting on tons of cash you need to do something with this mm -hmm. you need to start expanding that company if it's wise to do so hire people human capital make capital um uh ex expenditures to in, in, in make productivity better buy back stock retire debt uh, raise your dividend. All that stuff generally is friendly to shareholders. Excessive cash in the balance sheet is not. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at rates that we're seeing today. Right. It's like it's like anything else. It's like your personal balance sheet. Right. Yeah. Cash isn't doing you any good at the bank above and beyond three to six months living expenses. But I love that. It was good. <laughs> so I had to throw that in there. Um, but yeah, it, it's it is it is, you know, a benefit to shareholders. So, you know, anyone that owns stock should be cheering this on. I agree. I got one more. It's going to take maybe 60 seconds. I just want to give an update on U.S. GDP. It was a tweet by Isabella Net, a research firm, and they posted this on October 25th, Mark. It's a chart. It shows um, the GDP uh, for the third quarter. Most likely this number is going to end up coming in at a drop of 10 basis points. Uh, over the second quarter, which was a huge gain over the first. So to explain this, when these numbers typically come out, it is looking at growth of the U.S. economy since the last reporting, since the last quarter, okay? The last actual number we have is the second quarter of this year. We saw a 6.7% annualized gain over the first quarter. That's a huge move, right? Well, when this headline number comes out, average estimates is for a, a retraction of 0.1%. Why is that? You're seeing it. Supply constraints. The demand is there. People can't get stuff. We've talked about it on the podcast. The reason I want to highlight this is this is expected. Mm -hmm. Wall Street is expecting a 10 basis point dip. The estimates for the fourth quarter that we're in is a move of 8% annualized over the third quarter. Mm -hmm. Don't fret over this. If you see this in the headlines, you see media making a big deal about this. It is a nothing burger, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. I just want to get ahead of it. Yeah, agreed. Back to you, my friend. Um, financial planning topic of the week comes from an article on Barron's written by Andrew Welch. And this was on October 6th, uh, titled Financial Tips for New Parents. Advisors Offer Their Best Advice. Um, it's been interesting. I've been getting a lot of the baby questions recently, Jessup. Is there a, an underlying theme here I should be aware of, Mark? Well, it, no, 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 there is not. I'm, we're just, I'm coming up on my one year marriage anniversary in yes, November yes. and not only from family and friends, but clients are like, Hey, so when, when are you guys going to start having kids? And I'm it's like, an evolution of life, my friend, <laughs> just a matter of time, probably. <laughs> So I could probably take a few of these tips myself, but um, you they know just, you're going to get inundated with emails now from, from, from yeah, clients and listeners. Can't wait for those. Okay. Um, so they what they did was they asked a bunch of advisors around the country what are their best tips for for new parents, and I just wanted to pick a couple out. Oh, I'm excited for this. This one was from uh, Jeremy Sharp. Uh, he's the owner and financial planner at Redeem Wealth. He says your will, power of attorney, guardianship documents, get all that stuff done ahead of time. Have term life insurance before you have kids. This way they are protected. Automate as much as your finances as possible. Your savings, your investing, your 401k. Know what you need to hit your goals prior to having the baby. 
This is a time in life where it can feel like a blur to have to deal with all this extra stuff. You're going to want to focus on the things that matter, which is your family. So automate. So you get busy when you have kids, it gets more complicated. Mm -hmm. You're sleep deprived when they're young. Automate this stuff. I agree. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the, the thing that I, I've been hitting on with clients a lot is get your, you know, get your estate plan in order because you can go out tomorrow and get hit by a bus and if your estate plan is not in order, then your family and your loved ones are going to have an even more difficult time on top of the emotional trauma of what just happened. You want to be picking who's the guardian of your children. You want to be picking that when they inherit that money, God forbid something happens to um, you know, a single parent or, or spouses together, that that money is uh, properly accounted for and that you don't have an 18-year-old inheriting a million dollars those typically don't work out very well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's a thing that gets put on the back burner for a lot of people. But, you know, it's I not would... fun to talk about no, someone's it's not. mortality. It's no, not fun. no, it's not. But, but it's, it's you need to do it. It's necessary. Yeah. Uh, Christy Sullivan, founder of Sullivan Financial Planning, says, as you look at the high cost of infant care or hiring a nanny, you might say, oh, I should just stay home. But I would caution against that because there is a cost in stepping away from your career for three or five years. Also, if the cost of daycare is as high or higher than someone's current income, that may be a short-term problem because a person's income can rise and the cost of childcare can go down as the kid ages. I would also maintain that this is not just financial, it's also life cho choices. In my experience, it was easier to work more when my kids were little and it was more important to me to have fl the flexibility to be around when they were teenagers. So don't let the cost of daycare derail someone's career if they want to keep that career. Think longer term. I think that's a big point because if you look at, you know, you could pick the company, pick what sort of a job within that company. You don't start off at the highest paying rate. Let's take a teacher, okay? Teachers that retire and they put in 25 or 30 years. That's Typically their last three years of employment is their highest paying and their pensions based upon kind of an average of those three or five years. That's a big deal. But when you begin being a teacher, your compensation is nowhere near what it is at the end. Mm -hmm. Though, you know, you, you have the education, you have the ability to, to educate those students. Mm -hmm. You got to start somewhere and you got to build up that experience. Hence, build right. up that ability to get that, that pay over time. Mm -hmm. You just don't start from that in day one. Right. Right. And it's, it's such, this is another thing that it's like it, everything in our industry is so personalized. I think I, I feel like I come back to this concept all the time. There's no, you know, one size fit all answer to this. Golden and I know rule, people want bullet. that. Yeah. People want that. And I understand that, but it's just not, there's no shortcuts. Right. Because you have to determine, you know, how is important is it for me to stay home, to quit my job and stay home with my kids until they're five, six, seven years old and then go back into the workforce. But you can do the rough comparison of, you know, what is child care cost and grow that with inflation over a certain amount of years. And what would you expect to start making if you progressed in your career? So you can kind of somewhat justify it with numbers, but it's more, again, something that's just more than meets the eye, I think. Yes, sir. Um, Evelyn Zolan, president of Inspired Financial, says, get some life insurance. Things happen. It would be a very sad turn of affairs if, say, mom became uninsurable. I know that sounds grim, but part of my job as a financial planner is to prepare clients for all scenarios. Also, thinking about estate planning. So many young couples don't have any estate planning documents. They may think they don't need them. This is better to do before you're pregnant. 
get those documents as soon as you can and check your beneficiary designation so that if something happens to you, it's taken care of. Pick a guardian. If you don't, the courts will. Exactly. Going back to life insurance, most people that are having children are under the age of 40. You know, generally speaking, they're a healthier uh, class of people. The cost of insurance, especially term insurance, so cheap. very economical. So, you know, the the excuses are should be less and less as to why, you know, there should be an excuse. You should just do it. Yeah. And w when you're younger, you're more healthy and then you don't know what comes down the road in 10 or 20 years and you want to get insurance and maybe you have a, a pretty serious health problem. It sucks, but you will be more uninsurable and, and the therefore premium, the price is going to be the premiums going to go up or you could reach a point where an insurance company is not going to take on your risk and you become uninsurable. Right. That exactly. is that, that is a risk. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. And, and again, I know me and you are in the same boat that like we feel that insurance is insurance, like it's supposed to be for replacement of income if something were to happen to one spouse or, or both spouses. So, um, you know, and it's the cheapest. Yeah. You know, very simple to understand. You don't have to have a complex brain to understand term insurance like you do with whole life policies. It's vanilla and ice cream, insurance. baby. You yeah. might, you, you're still, you know, it's vanilla And it does cream. its job. Does its job. I still like vanilla ice cream, by the way. <laughs> Are you a vanilla guy? All right. Over the weekend, Rachel, uh, we had some vanilla ice cream. She got out some heavy whipping cream and she did this salted caramel like syrup that you would put like in coffee. Yeah. She put that in the heavy whipping cream, got out her like automatic mixer. Got that going. Put that on top of the vanilla ice cream. Sprinkled a little bit of cinnamon on top. It was fall in a bowl. Okay, so it's not just plain vanilla ice cream. I do, but sometimes you gotta get a little spice <laughs> on that, man. No, I agree. I agree. You're just not. You're not a vanilla guy. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. If he likes vanilla ice cream, uh, I, guess, I guess it's true. I, I like the little extra on top. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I like it. Okay. Just in time for Halloween treats. There you go. Uh, last but not least, Mike Berry, managing partner at Quorum Private Wealth and Sanctuary Wealth. Everyone has an amount you can gift every year without paying taxes on it. The annual gift tax exclusion for 2021 is 15000 per donee. If you have the assets, you can start using that to give to your new child to set them up for the future. This is an opportunity to do some estate planning. Another thing that I would do, and it's something my wife and I do with our kids, is teach financial literacy. This is the most underserved part of the education system in our country. Of course, you can't teach this to a two-year-old, but you can teach your older kids about tax deferral, savings, and all these things. Some people are completely transparent about their wealth with their kids. Others are completely closed about it. It really comes down to what is your attitude towards money. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It depends on you and your family. I relate money with my kids right now, what's relatable in their life. So for mm -hmm. my oldest, it is he has a, a virtual currency in a game called Fortnite and, and Roblox. He, he gets he gets what that means and what it gets him. And right. I relate that it takes daddy to work for in order for that virtual mm -hmm. currency to show up in that game. Right? right. For Micah, it is the analogy when he goes to Chuck E. Cheese. You have to earn those coins, and you don't get to buy anything from the desk without earning those coins. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how I make it relatable. And everyone has their way in their family that they can make that stuff relatable. Right. And, you know, ultimately, one thing that my wife and I are about to embark on is on the family chores. You know, when you get that money, you got to do a couple things with it. Mm -hmm. You can spend some, you have to save some, and you have to donate some, mm -hmm. whether it's to a religious organization or a charity. You got to do all three. Yeah. 
No, that's a great way to do it because right now financial literacy is put on parents to teach their children. They're not doing it in school. They're not doing it in school. You know, there are, I can think of a couple different, you know, private schools that have classes on financial literacy, but the general public, you know, that, that stuff's not taught in school. We got young doctors that are clients and they graduate and they're completely upfront. I got Mm -hmm. no education about managing money and they could diagnose heart disease. Yeah. Okay. But they, they can't do these other things. Mm-hmm. And that's just, un, it's unfortunate that we don't, this stuff is not taught in school. Yeah. And I think, so I think that's the best way to do it that you're like, you're doing it is related to something that they're like passionate about. That right? they can get, you got to make it relatable. Right. Cause you can't, you can't sit down Micah or Rowan right now and be like, okay, so this is the federal reserve. This is how interest rates work in this country. <laughs> this is how money is created. <laughs> they're not going to get that. Right. I love it. <laughs> So, yeah, so it's, it's interesting, but, um, but yeah, so for, for, for all the other things you have to worry about as a parent, there's financial aspects too. There sure is. Yeah. Anything else before you want to. We're in the thick of earnings seasons, listeners, just if you see intraday volatility on a specific stock name is a good, uh, good reason for it. Probably this time of the year, it's most likely they announced earnings and it's either a, a bigger than normal positive or negative reaction. It's probably a big part of it. Just kind of know we are in the thick of it this week right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. We'll leave it there for the week and uh, hope you all enjoyed listening to episode number 121. We'll be back with you next week and we hope everyone has a great weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.